To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, come on, guys. Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you this week. Uh, so I have back on the podcast, Scott Reekers from Eastman's. Uh, so Scott Reekers, um, he's really my contact over there at Eastman's. He's who I keep in touch with the most. So uh, we talk on a regular basis, uh, always talking hunting. And today we sit down and we do a podcast all about dealing with the hunting pressure. Uh, hunting pressure is such a, a, a real challenge in today's day and age of bow hunting and today's day and age of rifle hunting. I mean, I listen back to some of my recordings or get on my hunts and almost always I'm mentioning hunting pressure, at least trying to avoid it or trying to get away from guys. I mean, it's a major component to the equation. And so me and Scott Rickers just get into it today. Uh, he's used to dealing with pressure. I'm used to dealing with pressure, and and I hunt a lot of high pressure areas as well as low pressure areas. But this is just a great conversation. I think this is the the best podcast that we've done together. Uh, it's a great back and forth. Um, funny story we talk about. Scott's wife is expecting as we're trying to record this podcast before he leaves to help her out, and uh, he ended up having the baby that night. So they had a, uh, a healthy baby boy, and uh, it's doing great. I, I visited with Scott. I just ran over to the Eastman's office over there and so caught up with him, but this is just a great recording. So we'll get right into it. just want to thank a couple of our sponsors. Uh, I want to thank Swagger Bipods. Uh, accuracy with a rifle is all about your rest and swagger builds the the best bipods the best shooting sticks on the market they're they're just so well thought out and and operate so well that they make you more accurate and help you track your target so when you when you get on a standard bipod if you want to move left or right you have to pick up your bipod and move to the left or the right uh, swagger is built to swing so you can swing left and right so if that buck keeps walking that bull keeps walking you can swing on them the other thing is is it's spring tension loaded and so it makes uphill and downhill shots easier awkward shooting positions easier and i like that you can put the sticks out forward and lean that rifle back into your shoulder and create tension there so uh, they're the best bipods best shooting sticks on the market and they're just a must for Western hunting. Uh, hunting with my cousin and my uncle that come from Washington, you know, a lot of their shots are 200 yards or less. And um, it, it's timber country. You can always get a rest on a tree. But in this open country the West has, I mean, to be able to get a stable shooting position for prone, for sitting, for kneeling, uh, it, it's just so advantageous and, and almost a must to be accurate. So if you're in the market for some shooting sticks, uh, for, for the best bipod made, make sure to check out Swagger. Uh, I also want to thank Technu. Uh, Technu, they they, um, they they make their Technu original, and it's built for poison oak and poison ivy. And if you've ever got into that stuff, it's just miserable. The oil gets into your skin, gets on your steering wheel, gets, you know, it can, it can get in your truck, and then you can break out months later from it. And so... Uh, I always have a bottle of this Technu in my medicine cabinet, and it's just in case I get into that. Uh, I've had my dog get into it, and then everybody that pets my dog get, 
gets poison oak on their skin. Um, it just removes the oil. Uh, it, it also has some other uses. It'll remove sap off clothing. It'll remove that skunk smell off your dog. And uh, if you guys have ever had your dog get into a skunk, uh, tomato juice just doesn't cut it. Uh, Tacnu does. Uh, it gets rid of the oil and gets rid of the smell. So uh, you can have your buddy back in your house or wherever he resides. But I uh, just want to thank Tacnu. They've always been a great sponsor to us. Um, so, yeah, thanks for the support. With that, just got back from the Eastman's office. What a great trip. Um, went out there. It's been a couple years since I've been out there. So uh, catch up with everybody. Have some meetings on the podcast. Just super excited at the direction of the podcast and some of these new guests and new conversations we have coming up. Uh, recorded a couple awesome podcasts while I was there. Uh, they'll be coming up in the next couple episodes. But uh, I did a great one with Mike Eastman where I just caught the essence of Mike Eastman. We went over to his house had Ike and Dan sit in on the podcast and just got him rolling talking about what he's passionate about and and uh, and and then towards the end gosh we start talking about the good old days of hunting mule deer and he talks about crossing the river on the raft that um, I don't know if you guys ever remember that that piece by was it uh, Gordon Eastman filmed for crossing the uh, was the the river down there out of Jackson Hole to to kill a big buck up there? So he told a couple stories of a couple big bucks. One he about froze to death and died. And man, those guys were tough back in the day. But it's so fun to hear like the you know to raft across that river. Gosh, he was telling me they had a a military raft and they had to build their old oar locks and they really built the first frames for rafts. Had a metal go- or a PVC pipe, I think he was telling me. But just some wild stories about back in the day um, and and just such rich history here at Eastman's from Gordon to Mike. And so uh, really fun to sit down with Mike for like over an hour conversation. So I am super pumped to release that to you guys. And then we did one where we sat down with the whole Eastman staff. Um, Well, at least the the, the, don't say the major players. Everybody's got a role there at Eastman's, but all the guys that I work with in there that, you know, the Brandon Mason, Dan Picard, Guy Eastman, Ike Eastman, Scott Reekers, Brandon Mason. Uh, So we all sat down. Let's see. Oh, and uh, Todd Helm said it. And uh, it's just hilarious to to catch the authenticity of the Eastman's crew and be able to sit down and joke around and laugh and back and forth and tell hunting stories from the season. It, it was actually, it's absolutely what I envisioned for the 200th episode. And uh, it's just going to be a, a great podcast. I'm super excited to release to you guys. Uh, so those two are coming down the pipe, got some great beyond the grids. Um, been working with Lindsay here right now. She's editing uh, my elk 2019 um, gosh, I'm so pumped to share that one with you guys. It's such epic hunting. So I know it's going to come out in the outdoor channel. I'm hoping they do another release of Beyond the Grid. So we'll be on the lookout for that. But in the meantime, uh, Brandon Mason's son is on there in a recent episode. They're hunting mule deer. Um, we've, we've got, uh, a mountain lion hunt coming up. I think Guy talks about that in the 200 episode. So we just got some great episodes coming up. So make sure to check those out Beyond the Grid. And, uh, boy, I think that's about all I got. I've been, um, I've been hunting pretty hard for late season muleys. It's been tough, grueling conditions, crunchy snow, uh, tough weather. Um, just had a blast. I had one day that was just absolutely off the hook. I think I got four different plays on, on big mature bucks I wanted to kill. So, uh, 
I'm itching to get back out there. It's just um, I'm towards the end of my season and trying to squeeze in a, a January trip down to the desert. So um, I just got to take care of my responsibilities here, uh, get get things done at work and and uh, get things done, spend some real good quality time as we're Christmas. And my family has supported me through a long hunting season. So um, I just have to, to be around and uh, take care of some things. But I may be able to sneak out for a couple more days. Uh, you know, we'll... Uh, We'll see. It's open till the end of December, so I may try to get out a little before Christmas or a little after Christmas and yeah, see what I can do without pushing my limits. So super excited. Such a great season, and I'm just happy to be back working hard and training. And um, I, I just uh, I love the life I live every single day, not just hunting season. But, yeah, getting in good runs, uh, uh, shooting my bow. Uh, I need to get in and shoot some indoor here. I see the leagues are starting to to, to go so I can drive up to Bozeman and shoot there. I think the guys are shooting maybe Thursday night. So I got to get up and do a little of that. Uh, great podcast coming up. I'm rambling on. This isn't a solo podcast. I'm with my buddy, Scott Reekers. So let's get right into it. Uh, Eastman's elevated. Here we go. Well, I was thinking we've, um, Gosh, we've done some good podcasts, like on backpacking gear, mm-hmm. gear sponsors, and like I was thinking, like like a good authentic conversation goes a long ways. But these theme podcasts work really well. Mm-hmm. I was gonna see, like I hate to throw it on you spur of the moment, but kind of talk about hunting pressure. And um, mm-hmm. there's so much, like like during rifle and during bow season, mm-hmm. but during rifle season, it seems like we're always dealing with hunting pressure when we're hunting public land. So like, I just want to dive like into your thought process and how you go about it and, um, kind of, uh, you know, how you try to beat the pressure, but also like how you try to enjoy the hunt with the hunting pressure as well. I think it'd be a great topic if you're up for it. Mm-hmm. I would be absolutely love for that. I, cause this year was definitely, a exercise and exercise and learning how to work with pressure. And then also not letting, uh, that tell you that there were five, um, five horse trailers at the second place that I went deer hunting this year. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. And I didn't see a single person in there. You know, it's wild how you can spread out and get away from guys. I've hunted a lot of trailheads that look like that. I mean, I did when I came out. Well, let's just get right into the podcast, okay. Scott. Thanks a bunch for coming on again. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. It's been a while. You know, it's it's weird because you and I talk quite a bit uh, regularly, so we know all the stories, but we don't record together that often. So it's kind of fun to get to do at this when we do. We're always doing a podcast. I just don't always put you on air. <laughs> true i get to hear it before everybody else does which is actually kind of fun yeah and um you're expecting your or your wife's expecting you guys are expecting your next one so you might have to dive out during the podcast you guys are getting close well you know without giving too much information for everybody who you know wants to dive so deep into scott reeker's life um we are kind of in the final last stages of of the watch um this is number three, so supposedly they all come faster the longer it goes. But the doctor told us we're inducing Friday no matter what. But I just got an update from Rachel that, hey, uh, we might need to be ready in the next 24 hours. So, you know, that'll be good. But I would not be surprised if it starts going really fast as soon as, as soon as she says, hey, this is happening. So could make it interesting. 
you got to be ready for it at any time at this point. And when you're in rural areas, where is your guys' nearest hospital? Well, we have a hospital in Powell, but we've um, got a good relationship with our doctor and Cody, which is just 20 minutes down the road. So that's actually where we're going to go. Um, we've had both of the other girls there. And so we just, we like the hospital there um, and comfort level and things like that. So, you know, not too far. Um, you know, we shouldn't have any, you know, Scott having to deliver a baby on the side of the road. <laughs> incidents, <laughs> I don't think. Um, but if we do, you know, you can, you know, you can get a podcast on that and we'll tell everybody how to avoid having children at the tail end of hunting season. That or just good under pressure either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, we're, um, like in Ennis, like we have a hospital here, but they, they don't do, you know, any of the, the pregnancies or any of the deliveries or anything. And so we're the same way. You got to head to Dillon or you got to head to Bozeman, which is 60 minutes away. And so that it's always like nerve wracking as you're expecting or as, uh, contractions are starting or whatever that, you know, you're going to have to make the drive. And like you say, you don't want to have to deliver the baby on the way. So it's always kind of on your mind. You're always ready to go. Well, and it's nine degrees outside today. I'm sorry, I'm not delivering a baby in the back of the Yukon. That's just not happening. <laughs> so we're going to get to the hospital. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, yeah, thanks for jumping on. Man, it's always good to catch up to you. Um, man, we both had uh, really busy hunting seasons. I know the guys have been busy in the office there. So, yeah, just good to catch up to you. I, I really wanted to get together today. You know, we've talked about backpack hunting and, um, mm -hmm. gosh, we've talked about high country mule deer and uh, tent cap camping. But I thought a good one that I've been thinking about a lot would be to talk about hunting pressure. It It's so prevalent, like, in today's day and age on public land. It's really popular, and it's good that we have a voice as hunters. But that's the one place you don't want to run into hunters is in the backcountry. You kind of want your own experience and to yourself, but you, you have to deal with it. There's, you know, you, you try to work around it a bit, but it's just the nature of the beast hunting public lands and these easy-to-draw tags, right? You know, I read, um, it was kind of funny, we had, it was mid-90s when Mike's book, Hunting High Country Mule Deer, came out. And he talked about finding basins where people don't like to go. And over the course of the next year, that really changed or people became became a lot less concerned with showing that they were hunting in a certain area. Like, I don't know if it was maybe they're trying to intimidate others. Hey, this is my area. You know, I could show yourself or what. But it's definitely changed where... And maybe it's just this hunting philosophy. People don't hide their camps as well. I really don't know. But it, it sometimes it feels like there's more pressure. Um, and I think it's been there for a long time. But I think the, you know, in order to be successful, you just have to be adept at knowing where people are going to go, why they're going to go there, and where that's going to push animals. And that's that's the name of the game. Um one philosophy I've had is you may not find a lot of animals, but when you're trophy hunting, if you find places that um, don't have high animal densities, but you do find good bucks in there, or bulls for that matter, you won't find as many other hunters. And um, it served me well in some cases, like that hunt that Ike and I did together last year. Um, it served us really well, 
But unfortunately, this year there were more people in there. Um, and I think it actually had an effect on uh, the bucks. I had two bucks picked out in there. I know for certain that some archery elk hunters, they weren't deer hunting. They were archery elk guys. They were having a blast, and they happened to find some bulls in the area. But I know they bumped one of the deer that I was planning to hunt out of the basin. Then on, then there was a, there were some guys that they got bumped from a fire, and they set up a wall tent in the area, and they'd never hunted this area before, but they just happened to try it because they wanted, um, they wanted to try a new area because of this fire. And sure enough, they came back in a second year, and I never saw the buck that was, you know, about about a thousand yards from their their camp. I know they spent some time in there during the tail end of archery elk season, and so I'm pretty sure they bumped that buck or got him into into the heavier timber, which um, made my season tough. But it's hunting pressure, and so I just had to go somewhere else where where I knew there weren't as many people or potentially shouldn't be as many. And so that involved an actual hour-long um, drive down a dirt road uh, to a different uh, set of basins. And lo and behold, when I pull up, um, and this is this is around the, the start of October, I pull up, and sure enough, there are five horse trailers there. But I didn't see a single one of them. Um, I saw some horses like four miles off, uh, clear up, you know, clear up several miles away in a different basin, but I never actually ran into any of the people that were at the same trailhead as I was. So sometimes it's just a matter of, um, a matter of, of relocating. And I did find a really good buck on this trip. He was a, have I sent you the pictures of this buck, Brian? No, I don't think you have. I need to send you the pictures. He is an old buck. Um, Unfortunately, he was 1,800 yards away when I was phone scoping him, so the definition's not really good. And so he's a really big 3x4 with a 3-inch sticker on the 3 side, but he's heavy, like heavy all the way. And then his body size, he was just a tank, old Roman nose dude. And so we found him. Unfortunately, I screwed up the stock. But this goes to show that sometimes you have to – Knowing that all those guys were using horses to access this country, I knew they were probably going to go deeper than what I was going to go with llamas. But I had mobility to my advantage. We started with one point, glassed up the buck, completely moved camp, um, about a two-mile walking distance, but it was only 1,800 yards to the buck from where we were actually were glassing from that morning. Um, but he was, he was kind of to circle around to get to a good camping spot and then um, hike to him. But we found a buck, we had an opportunity, but part of it was just knowing that those horse hunters probably were planning on going further than we were, and were actually going to compete with each other more than they were going to compete with me. Yeah, um, well, and, and it's all the way, like, the way I think about it, too, is there's all still the same population of animals in the mountains. There's just more guys, yep. and it seems like when you find the deer, when you find the elk, there usually isn't other humans around, you know. There's just they find these pockets of country where humans aren't, and and it's also just like your horse guys. I've always thought that the horse guys like to be ten plus miles back, you know, yep. and that gives us all, you know, the the backpacking country. It gives you all two to three miles in, all the way to ten miles, where you can kind of find mm -hmm. your own niche. And in hunting yep. pressure, you know. 
every every place is different and in every mountain range is different but i also find that like you can beat the pressure just by setting up and, and sitting behind your glass being at the master vantage mm-hmm. point even though there's guys around you can see all of that country and you may see some guys that are watching a buck or on a buck or see him or something but five miles over in the other drainage you see a batch of bucks that nobody sees you know and then that's your play mm-hmm. that's where you can go so it is kind of like it's tough because hunting pressure is always on my mind like it's just been it's part of the hunting now and I've definitely seen it grow you know most mostly because I'm a bow hunter. And when I started hunt high country mule deer 15 years ago, there just wasn't that many guys doing it. And now, you know, it's gotten pretty popular. There's a lot of guys. And just like you said, like nowadays, guys aren't afraid to go for it with a rifle or with a bow. They'll travel yep. miles in the backcountry. Everybody's working really hard towards their goals. So, you know, to separate yourself, the same rules still apply though, that effort you know the farther you can get back and like horses like you were saying they use that backcountry they also need water they need a place to keep their Mm -hmm. horses they can't work those really steep trails or really steep game trails that get in those knife blade ridge lines you know places where me and you backpacking can get and here's a you know and it's, it's there's different philosophies with different stock animals like the guy that I had is my cameraman um, for my my second hunt, and I'll back up this just to explain the whole story, and I'll put all of this in perspective. Um, I scouted twice, and I, so I found the deer during the summer, um, and then I went went on opening um, opening week. Like Ike and I had plans to be up there for the full week if we needed to, and he actually got sick. We had to come out early. Um, and one of my camera guys on one of the scouting trips had gotten sick earlier. So face that adversity on top of pressure inside a general unit in Wyoming. Um, and so I came back, regrouped, and actually found a guy. He's a, he's a camera guy who's got a really good eye, um, really good still photographer as well. And he he's also a horse trainer. And so... We were talking because I had the llamas and, you know, you and I backpack hunt a lot and backpack hunting has, has freedom with the ability to move, especially if you want to do like really small shelters, really lightweight sleeping bag and extra insulation with your clothes for sleeping and things of that nature. It provides that freedom, but then you also get into the how far out do I actually want to have to pack this animal? And for me, that's a bigger deal with elk than it is with deer. Me too. You know, I don't, I don't care how tough you are. You know, elk are big, and it's probably going to take you more than one trip. So there comes a point where you have to say, okay, this is dumb if I kill something here at this point. Um, but with you know, with talking with my camera guy, who's a horse guy, he, you know. We started up this trail when we're on the way to the stock and we, you know, stop and breathe. We're trying to not get sweaty so we don't sit there shivering while we're waiting for the buck to step out. And we were kind of whispering and he's like, yeah, we just found the limit of where I'd take my horses. And this is a horse guy who's, you know, taking horses in a lot of places. He was actually talking about being up here by Yellowstone with, you know, rounding up cattle the week before um, when he was here. And, you know, he, he found the limit. Whereas I could have taken the llamas there, but llamas still need water once a day. They don't need to be on it like you would with a horse where you pretty much have to camp on a creek with a horse. But 
with the llamas, you have a little bit more freedom, um, but not as much as with the backpack. And that's the only time I ever struggle with having the llamas is when I'm like, but then I got to go pack them up because you brought a few extra things with you. Whereas when you're with a backpack, it's like, I can go, you know, um, it's, you just, you just pack up and go. So that's the only time I've ever struggled with that. But I had the llamas packed up in under an hour and ready to, ready to move the two miles down so we could go put a stock on this buck. So that was, that was cool to see how that worked. But the other cool part was we knew where we were at inside that window. We were, um, we were definitely under five miles in when I found this buck and there was no other pressure there because we made the choice to move from a place that had higher pressure. Like I'll, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe I, I tend to agree with you as I'm more people are going for it, like trying to go into the back country and really test their metal with that. But I think there's based on the numbers, we're selling fewer licenses in a lot of cases, but on the same end, I do think there's more people going for it. And so I think that's where a lot of the pressures come from. But if there's more people going for it, I think a lot of people chase ghosts. Do you know that? Have you ever heard anybody say that, Brian? Or are you familiar with that one? Um, I'm not familiar with it. Like I have a guess at what it means, but go ahead and explain it. So I don't I don't remember who I heard it from, and it's from a forum. So, but and. <sighs> I don't want to credit Stephen was saying it, but he may have said it, um, Stephen Rosso. Um, but I don't chase other people's ghosts. A lot of guys hear about a giant in an area, and they all try and go scout it. They all try and hunt that area. Um, and so the first time I ever heard of this, I was hunting a fairly popular spot, or I was scouting a fairly popular spot, and I was coming out. I'd found several 170 to 180 bucks. Nothing giant, but definitely good buck. Well, I, ne I didn't, you know, I, nothing that I was like, oh, man, I have to come back in here. So I run into this guy and his wife, and they're just day hiking in. So I wasn't in there. Um, and then this this guy asked what I'm seeing, and I told him, oh, nothing great. I wasn't lying. Um, and then his wife goes, oh, you didn't see such and such buck up here? And I was like, oh, man, this guy's going to kill his wife. Because <laughs> she definitely gave away. You're going to see a murder right in front of you. <laughs> yeah. Like, but that also told me that this guy was in here. He was serious about being up here because he's looking for a specific buck. They named this buck. And I was like, well, if his wife has said something here to me, a total stranger, chances are they've talked about this. And so that means there's going to be pressure here, probably more pressure than I want to deal with. So I wasn't going to go chase his ghost, like of a buck that may or may not be in that area. Um, I don't go chase the legends, you know, you know, during the Popeye years, I remember like I was fairly young, but everybody knew where Popeye was or thought they knew where Popeye was. And so they were all going to go hunt those areas. And Buck never got killed, but lots of people chase Popeye's ghost. Um, and so I I would rather trust my scouting, work hard to find places like pockets, like what you're talking about, where there's other, where you don't see a lot of other people. Sometimes you're not going to see 50, 60 bucks or bulls or whatever. You'll see, you know, half that. But chances are you're going to find a bigger one if there's less pressure. 
Yeah, I like that, chasing ghosts. Um, you're right. I don't do good chasing anybody else's hunting area, anybody else's tips, anybody else's vapor trail where they just got into them. For me, I have to think myself. I've got to figure it out myself. I've got to actually look at the mountain range and decide it's a place I want to hunt and I want to go hike into. But I've never done good at that. And so, like, like I actually thought you meant by chasing ghosts, like um, the guys that just kind of hunt through the timber and they're looking for a timber buck and they're not sitting back on the vantage points, like really picking it apart, chasing the deer that they're glassing, you know, because everybody – has a different way they like to hunt country and also a different skill set. Um, but yeah, no, that's interesting, chasing Popeye. And you know what I think too, Scott? Like bow hunting around and being able to scout all these summers, there's more big deer than than we think live in these mountains. Like it's crazy scouting and hunting how many big deer I chase year after year and, and easy to draw general tags. I mean, those, those bucks that we love to chase that are really wide and mm-hmm. big forked and big framed and in extras and, you know, I, I'm not uh, – over judging like some of these deer are absolute monsters where you can't see daylight through your horns that would sit right up there with the living legends you know and those mm-hmm. bucks are out there but yeah i never find them like chasing ghosts like you're saying or chasing somebody yep. else's information for me like i just gotta i gotta decide i want to hunt that place and then put the effort in Mm-hmm. i agree like and once once i reached the point where i was completely satisfied with going into my own spots and finding the deer there, documenting the deer there. Um, that's one thing I don't think a lot of people do really well is documenting where they, where they found animals. Um, and then, you know, and because you don't, you don't haven't really kept track of what you're looking at and where you've actually seen them and it starts to run together especially in, you know, like Wyoming's region G and H, there's a lot of deer there. And so if you don't document where you saw it, and it's real easy now with um, all of our GPS tools to document where you saw them. Um, And then on the other end of the spectrum and talking about pressure, I document where I find, where I found other people's recent camps Um, just because it, it helps me understand how many people are actually using that area. But there are no secrets in region G and H. Um, you know, it's just there isn't a spot that hasn't been covered by someone at some point. Maybe some of them are a little bit less, but the simple reality is you're going to see hunters in the same basin you're in. And you just kind of have to get okay with that and understand that, yes, I will have competition, but sometimes it means just outlasting them. Sometimes it means knowing the country a little bit better. Um, I had a, you know, one of the terms that we kind of started using when we were um, really getting serious about mule deer was living with the deer. During the summer, you got to live with the deer to figure out all their habits. If you watch them long enough, you'll see all their escape routes. And so understanding where somebody else's camp is going into a certain basin will help you understand where they're going to enter and exit that same basin if you've scouted them that summer. Well, and you just got to find your own niche. Like I find in... You know, even in that rifle season, like going in with my dad into popular areas, we just got to find our niche. We see guys in basins. 
we see deer, we see guys getting on deer, but we just find our own spot to kind of, okay, we got these few drainages to ourselves. like, let's hang here. We saw a guy this way. We're going to go the opposite direction, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just like you said, like sometimes you can outlast them. And, and so I try not to worry about the hunting pressure. Like a lot yep. of our, our hunting time, we have to enjoy the whole adventure and experience. Yep. And man, it's tough when you, when you hike five, six miles in 3000 vert and you get back there and there's other guys hunting it because that just means it lowers your chance at killing one in that drainage. And so sometimes that can be tough to deal with mentally, but you just got to go into it. Like you say, you know, you're going to run into pressure. You're going to deal with it as it comes. You're going to find your own niche. And just like you guys, you guys moved areas this year. Mm-hmm. You can outlast guys. I always think like I have, I have a, a lot of hunting experience hunting mule deer. So a lot of times, like I think, think i can outglass or hunt it more effectively you can only be one spot at a time you can only be one spot in the morning one spot at night there isn't a guy that can be on every point on every ridge so you just gotta hedge your bets and you go to your your highest percentage chance where you have it to yourself where you might catch them and like i beat the pressure this year like um i uh my my Wyoming hunt, like this was a spot I had hunted before, and I had gone in and done a bunch of scouting in here, and I had scouted some enormous bucks, and they ended up killing one that made the magazine in there, and the guy ended up hunting from the exact vantage point I wanted to hunt from, but the problem, you know, it was 10 miles back, but it was by water where horses could get, and the vantage point yeah. I wanted to look off of, you know, was right where these guys were, and they ended up killing a giant buck in there, so this year I had a new plan of like, Get in there. I'm going to see it. I'm going to go in there a week later. I'm going to let bow season open and guys hunt for a few days. And I had a Colorado mm-hmm. tag and then I'm going to go there and I'm going to hunt yep. after everybody burns himself out. And my plan was to check that spot because it's this huge drainage with this awesome vantage point that these big bucks just love. But then I'm going to work this ridge that doesn't have much water. And I know some other secluded basins where I found mule deer before. So I came into it with a good game plan. So so this the first time I hunted it, I ended up killing a buck in there, but I got in there, bunch of hunting pressure, that horse camp, they ended up killing a good buck. I finally arrowed one a couple ridges over. This year when I went in there, I was five days later, there was nobody in there. Nobody at the trailhead, nobody hunting in there. I mean, I didn't see another guy until the 13th, two days before rifle season. And then, you know, the 14th, they really started to show up. But yeah. I had this thing all to myself. And, you know, I there were some days I'd see 30 bucks from the vantage point, you know. But there's every mm-hmm. day I turn up a really good 170, 180-inch-plus mule deer from that vantage point that then I could make a play and make a stock. And it... You know, it was tough. I really battled uh, weather and winds and, you know, all kinds of challenges. But I got more plays on more good bucks just playing it that way, like later in the season. Mm -hmm. So it's weird how you can beat that pressure with hunting during the week or hunting after the opener. I always go in for opening day. And the opening couple days of season are way different hunting than, like, after it sets in for a week. So I think I'm going to implement that more to kind of beat the pressure, I think. Yeah. Well, truth be told, I've, I, after an experience where I was in a basin where, and this wasn't, this wasn't even like, you know, you hear on opening morning rifle, you hear far off rifle shots. I really don't count those as like my area when you hear them far off in the basin close. I had 14 rifle shots within the first hour. Oh my gosh. It's world war three. 
it and then and it was terrible brian and so at that point i realized this like part of me the you know the absolute mule deer nut who can't stand to see you know see them struggle was like this is not cool to be up here watching this and so like that was the last time i had hunted opening day until 2017 um, cause I, I actually started going in, um, 16th, 17th or later cause there's, um, there's a lot of people that they get discouraged when they see a bunch of other people and they do it every year and they quit every year, like several days in. Um, and you know, my, I killed that buck last year on the 16th of September. Like Ike and I couldn't get in on opening day. Well, we got in on opening day, but it was evening and we didn't even see any deer that night. And then the next morning is when I found that buck. And then he, obviously we just sat there and he actually came to us. Um, but my 2013 buck, I killed him 26th or 28th of September. I don't remember. Um, but it was right at the tail end of a snowstorm. I was going to do a through hike. Um, I actually had, had Dalton with me that guy has done some camera work for you. And we were going to, we had a, we had a route picked. We're going straight up a mountain and, um, you know, we were going to go glass a section that I knew deer showed up and I didn't even make it a mile up the trail before I killed this buck and he's 30 inches wide. Um, but it had changed. He was hugging timber. He was in the buck brush. Um, but I just happened to run in his head. I could see this, this big, like, looked like a giant ditch and, you know, we were actually trying to put a stock on a different buck for Dalton. And I told Dalton, you better shoot quick because I'm shooting this other one that just showed up. And, uh, you know, but it's one of those later in the season, there was no, like there was where no vehicle tracks up this road that we used as a trailhead. Like the snow was fresh. There was nobody had been up that road since the snowstorm. And, so the deer started behaving like deer again, even though they're hard horned and hug the timber quite a bit more. Um, you know, that's one of the coolest parts of like the August uh, slash early September archery seasons is that you can go in and get them in velvet when, you know, when they're trying to avoid the timber a little bit more before they're, while they're trying to avoid being hard on their antlers. Such an you advantage. Know. Yeah, just lack summertime <laughs> attitudes up in the Alpen basins, up there in the middle of the day. Yeah, it's, it's yep. just, it's a way easier season to hunt them. But that all changes with hunting pressure, too. The bucks drop yep. down to secondary living quicker. And, um, you know, nobody used to hunt the, the Wyoming bow seasons in there. You know, at least when I started hunting those, I could draw them with a point or so, you know. And, and yep. um, yeah, anymore, there's a lot of guys going hard with their bows. So that's kind of changed, too. Those bucks are, you know, this whole time, the whole hunt I started, you know, where I hunted 10 days, you know, from September 4th or 5th on, um, all those bucks were secondary living, no more Alpen basins. Well, one of the things that I think is, has had an effect on, on it too, and this is just a difference between mule deer and elk, but I think there's a lot of guys chasing the, the elk rut that have an effect on mule deer behavior. Um, because the way you, you know, the way you can tail an elk herd trying to keep the wind just right, you can, you maybe have their wind right for an elk or for that herd of elk, 
but it may be shooting straight up the chute to all the mule deer. So I think with the pressure that's come from the popularity of archery elk hunting, I think that's made a difference too. Um, and affecting both because there's more, you know, there's more human, human footprint up there. And I think that's changing the way that some of these bucks behave a little quicker. Oh, you're right. Like a lot of these guys I'm running into while I'm deer hunting are elk hunting in all these different states, Colorado and uh, Wyoming. And, and, um, you know, I can't think of any others right now, but yeah, I run into a lot of elk hunters and those elk hunters, you're right. You hunt elk more aggressively. You're chasing bugles. You're trying to locate a herd. You're trying to keep through with a herd. So a lot of times you're just like, you're traveling country right through the heart of it, right through the heart of where these deer and elk want to be, you know, the, the lower end of the deer and the higher end of the elk, you know? And so I find that too. I think they, they kind of bump them and move them around a little bit. But yeah, you just gotta, I think it is about, like, I just keep believing in living and dying behind my glass. And the pressure affects me yep. less when I have really good vantage points. You know, even if I can see guys or see somebody, if I've got the master vantage point where I'm looking over 30 square miles, like, I just mm-hmm. know I'm going to turn up a buck that nobody sees. I know I'm going to find my yep. own deal that I can go work and go be on. You know, so a lot of times I just try to believe in the glass. I I completely agree. Like, so backing up to scouting this summer, one of my plans was I had a ridge that I've um, I've I've killed deer in here before, but I haven't uh, I haven't ever run the entire ridge because it actually goes off trail, but down one side and to a different trailhead. So I've got a big loop that I can do, but I hit a different trail once I head further north and then come back down and can get to the same trailhead I started at. Well, that's cool. Is so I'm I'm going to do it this summer. Like Ike and I actually talked about how um, you know one of my scouting trips that I'm going to do where you know we're I'm going to go in and I'm going to I'm going to work this entire ridge and then I'm going to come out that other side. But I have the ability to hit about six different vantage points, and each vantage point I can look in at least two basins, um, and and then plus because of where the the ridge runs north and south so i can like i'll have a good vantage spot in the morning and a good vantage spot in the evening and so that'll make a big difference too because of the direction the sun is coming i mean you can game that a little bit if you've got an east west running ridge you know you can change your angle just a little bit but you're still you'll get a little bit of glare in your glass with that but you know being able to have a distinct direction you know this is the direction i'm going to look in the morning this is a direction I'm going to look in the evening and I'm not looking straight into the sun or having to mess with angles. You know, that makes a big difference. Yeah, that's smart. We, that's what we did this year. We parked uh, Dan's truck on the other side of the range about 40 miles away and then parked a, a bike halfway um, that uh, just on the road that then we could ride the bike back to the original truck. And then I parked my truck in another spot, you know, so we could do a total through hike and mm-hmm. not have to cover that same country. But yeah, sometimes just thinking outside the box like that, even if there is hunting pressure, you're just covering so much country. And it's like, yeah, you might run into yep. a guy or a camp here, but the next push you're going to get out of that pressure and guys don't want to travel too far from their rig or too far away from where they got to bring a deer out. So, you know, if you're willing to set it up that way, I I think that's super smart and a great plan. You know, and I also find like, 
I got out of the pressure during our – I hunt a high-pressure elk spot here in Montana that I like. I hunt a bunch of different spots. But this one has fairly high pressure, but it not much rifle pressure. And so it grows just a bunch of big six points and really good elk population. And it, like you were saying, you were the first trucks up those tracks. Like I find in that place – I can play the mud or the snow, and it worked perfect this year. The the road just cleared up. I was able to get 50 miles back in there, and then the snowstorm came in again and muddied everything in, and I was the only guy back there, and I was in the absolute party of elk. It was crazy, but That's all, cool. all just from that, that road being muddied up. You know, it, it, It's crazy how if you just time it right sometimes, you can find that really good hunting and nobody around. So I have the spot. And it's a high-pressure spot that a lot of people have never put two and two together on it. Um, elk, elk are migratory and kind of in their nature. Like they, you know, well, I should say this. The mountain elk are a bit more migratory than, say, the, you know, like like the the desert elk that we've got in some of these other places. Well, and they're but, all nomadic. Like you say, that's just the nature of them. Yep. And so, yeah, the elk wander, man. They're just they're just wanderers all over the place. That's why they're you find fifty elk in a basin one day, and then the next day there's none, you know. And they're four, three and a half miles, four miles sometimes in the next alpine area, and you know, right on the fringe of what would be considered elk country. But this particular spot, it's definitely secondary. Um, but everybody tends to think, oh, snow just makes elk hunting good. Well, snow plus knowing elk behavior makes elk hunting good. And so what's happened is there's in Wyoming, there are a lot of places that have feeding areas, especially on the western side of the state. And so over the course of time, these elk have figured out that if we migrate, there's a couple of hills we can hang out on on our way to our feed ground of choice. And... So if there's a, and it's got to be at least six inches. If there's not, if it's, if it's less than six inches, those elk will not move. But once you get that six inch snowstorm, these elk will move to the spot. And if you hunt it in the middle of the week, you usually have this place to yourself. Even though there's a spot where four wheelers can stop, you know, like where the, the road gets shut down as it heads into the national forest, but you'll have it to yourself if you can get there during the middle of the week. And, you know, I've seen big bulls killed on there. I've filled a lot of cow tags in that spot. Um, but it's just because, you know, understanding that you got to have that snow. Once that snow is there, the elk are there thick until the snow gets too heavy in that spot. Then they go to the feed ground. But they may be there for two and a half months, but, you know, only actually probably about 10 days of the actual hunting season when it's open, they'll be there. But, the rest of the hunting season, all these guys that go up there, I've, I've heard it from them. They're like, there's no elk around here anymore. Last year was great, and it was because we had the snow. Well, they've never they've never spent the time to go around to the other side where you can see they all crossed from the basin, you know, heading to their feed ground. Um, they, they never put two and two together on it. And truthfully, if I hadn't had an old guy that lived in the town that said he had watched it, like watched them actually crossing the road one night up this hill, um, I would have never known either, um, but that cued me in on their migratory nature. They're they're nomads, but they there is a method to their madness. They're heading to the they're heading to the snow or to their feed ground. That's really cool, Scott. That's a cool spot and a really good point you brought up. So, like one of my biggest secrets is it gets later into October, 
archery elk is like we get these snowstorms and like you say the the when you're i see what you're honing in on the the migratory pass the elk travel through the same travel corridors the same places and then they like to hold in the same locations once the weather comes in they they do it year after year and so that's like one of my biggest secrets when archery elk hunting is they start moving towards the winter range and like you say they don't get on the winter range but they get on the fringes of it or the places that lead up to there and over the years through shed hunting and then you know i used to hunt a lot of late season rifle around here i've got all these good locations that usually are not good during bow season but the minute we get that first snow these elk just pile into these locations and elk hunting it's all timing. You can have the best elk yep. spot in the in the world. You can go in there and see zero elk, but if you time it right, the whole party of them is in there. And so I key in on that. The snowstorms around here are major for me. I watch the weather. When those things come in, those elk just show up like clockwork in these spots. And there's no hunting pressure on them because nobody's seen them up there or knows they're there. And so I get first crack at them. And so knowing the yep. elk and knowing how they migrate and, and roam through country and then – what triggers it, man? You can find some epic hunting that way. Well, one of this is probably one of the first times I ever thought I should investigate this. I was I was going into it's one of my go to spots now. And years ago, I ran two guys that during during the rifle deer season, they they had seen a ton of elk in there, and they of course were. Um, you know, rutting like crazy. And they thought, oh man, this will be a fantastic spot to go in, you know, and it's a month later in the hardest time. Um, one of the hardest times I think to kill a, kill a big bull is, you know, that October 15th to 20th time frame, especially if there's no snow. Oh, for sure. So they had burned an entire week during open, during the opener to go sit up in the same spot that they had seen a ton of elk. Well, over the years, I've gotten to know this spot, and you know, when I went and scouted it this summer, we found 50 head of cows in there. Not a single bull with that group, obviously, during the summer. That's just not how it works, but it's a nursery. Well, what happens in the early rut, and I would say September 15th is probably still early rut in a lot of cases, is those cows are going to stay there till they get pushed till the bulls say, nope, I need to separate you guys so I can give you my full attention. And a lot of times that they'll stay in those nurseries, even with some of the smaller bulls pushing around. So you may have like a mini rut fest going on because it's all these satellites and raghorns that are trying to split up this. And then all of a sudden about, you know, September 15th to 20th, depending on whatever the pattern is, the big boys show up. And that's usually when the you know, rut around here tends to really heat up is that time frame. Well, then they all get pushed out of the nursery. But if you're going in during during the rifle deer season in western Wyoming, you know, a lot of it opens up mid-September. Well, you're going to get the wrong pattern on the elk because they're, you know, they're going to be, it's going to be okay, like, okay, five by six as that are pushing some cows, but those cows aren't leaving the nursery. This is a great spot for them to keep feeding their calves. They're not going to leave unless a big bull pushes them out of there. And and so a lot of people find out the wrong wrong information and try and translate that into a general rifle hunt, and that doesn't pan out that way. 
Yeah, you're spot on. Um, elk is all timing throughout the entire season, and and not just with snow and in the migration, but you're right. Even those rutting grounds, and and I have spots like that too, where the cows hang out all summer long, and then early in the rut, like I used to catch it September 5th, the bulls would get in there, and then they're sorting out cows, and like you say, there's a a few that still continue to hang out in there, but that big party happens you know, the first week in September. And then after that, good luck trying to find a mature bull in there. But all of these spots throughout bow and rifle season, they're all just timing. And like, I'm finding that now, you know, now I'm into the muley rut and I hunt them here late season. And um, I do really good in this early part of November. You know, not every group of does has a buck, but the big boys start to move in, travel country, and and then one out of every few groups of deer will have a good buck. And and I find some some really big ones this time of year. But boy, you time it wrong. I took my daughter out last weekend. And we found some good action and some good bucks, and she ended up getting one. But um, you just miss it, and the deer just aren't in there. The the does are still around, but those bucks just aren't cruising yet. It was like the last week in October, that last week in October. It's just too early, and the bucks haven't moved in there yet. They just haven't switched on to that pre-rut. I'm just a touch early, but now this weekend, it'll be a totally different game. Yep, and I'll be honest. I am – I am very uneducated on hunting the mule deer rut because we have so little of that here in Wyoming. Um, most of the, for the most part, the tags here that, that allow you to hunt mule deer during the rut or even the pre-rut, they, they're pretty hard to draw. Um, you know, they're like, if you go look at our, at the blog, you can, you can see most of the ones that have that, you know, October 15th opening date or later, they're pretty tough to draw. And there's some that happens up here, West Wyoming. Um, but part of the logic with that is that it's all of, it's it's a combination of the rut and the migration out of Yellowstone, and so that makes it you know a twofold understanding where they're going to be and when they're going to be there. And so I I see a few people around here in this region that. They figured out more the migration than the rut timing with big mule deer, and they've figured out how just to sit. And you may only see two deer in a day, but both of them you see are um, are big, you know, and they they'll come out with a 185 inch buck just about every year. And I, I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive to be able to be that patient and just sit and watch this corridor for a while. Um, you know, just watching the doe train go by and then all of a sudden the buck shows up. Um, that's that's a, an exercise in patience that I'm probably not as good at, but I think I need to learn it before the opportunity goes away. Yeah, um, it is. It's such a special opportunity to hunt the mule deer rut, and Wyoming does it right. You guys have good management in place, you know, to protect those deer, and that's why you guys have a bunch of big ones to hunt, and you get to hunt them in one of the tougher seasons to hunt mule deer, but the the rut is really the Achilles heel of mule deer. Now, I do wish that Wyoming could make some more off revenue if they'd offer more to bow hunters, you know, do like a bow hunter late season. I love getting in on something like that, but... 
Um, yeah, it's a rare opportunity to hunt them during the rut. I just consider myself fortunate. I get a little bit more opportunity using a bow and arrow, um, but they're so tough to kill and get close to. You know, it's kind of like hunting a bull during the rut. Like, it's not the buck that's going to catch you. It's all those does around there that are going to catch you trying to slip in and, and make a play. And you also have to be more aggressive, like uh, bedding them down and making this methodical, thought-out play. You don't always get that opportunity in the rut. Sometimes... You just kind of got to get in and just kind of move with them and wait for your opportunity to kind of move in or close in. But it is a fun season to hunt them. And um, I love the early season, and I love this late season. It sure is fun to hunt the rut. But, yeah, you should get into it. You'd love it. I'm I'm debating it. I'm I'm going to start venturing out a lot more out of Wyoming. I won't say that I'm I'm a homebody by any stretch. I've traveled all over the world. But I'm going to start now incorporating some more hunting my, you know, well, I'm about to have a baby, but the, you know, my girls are getting to, to the point where it's like, okay, this is feasible for me to be gone. You know, sometimes these trips can take two weeks, you know, um, cause you got to plan to stay there as long as you can. So now I'm, now I'm kind of spreading my wings. I've built up some points in Nevada. Um, I've actually looked at some opportunity in Colorado that I'm going to make happen, um, so there's, and some of that is going to be rut hunt, um, but I'm, I'm excited to go learn those things, um, learn the timing on all of that. But I think the, I think the biggest thing that I, you know, that I really like, and if you've listened to any, any of this, I'm sure you're aware I'm a, I am a certified mule deer nut. I love seeing, um, I love seeing people be successful with mule deer. I love the work ethic that comes with a lot of high country mule deer, um, and then being able to do it with a bow too is huge. I, I just, I want at the end of, um, at the end of my, I'll say hunting career when I'm, you know, too old to climb up into those basins or whatever, I would love to have mule deer from, from the rut, from the high country, um, and different stages where, harvesting one from each of those stages let's just say like the october first i think october 1st to the 15th is probably one of the hardest times to harvest a real big mule deer just they're hard horned they're on the secondary ridges they're not moving much and if you get a full moon it's even worse and so i you know i want to be able to have harvested um a big deer from each of those stages of the hunting season because for me, that's about knowing knowing the animal and knowing it really well. Oh, that's really cool, Scott. So that's kind of how I look at it, too, is I fell in love with mule deer. And so I love hunting them in every different season, in every different habitat, in every different state. Like, I, I love – like. They just act different, and they can live from the sage rush to the to the highest peaks on those mountaintops. And to go challenge yourself in a different habitat with a species, you know, the same species, but it has different tendencies and, uh, you know, uh, uh, relies upon different instincts at times, whether that's sight or scent or where he beds or whatever. But but I love taking on that challenge, and it, it, it's so fun to hunt them in the different habitats. And I find myself now, like, I, I think I've harvested one out of about every western state I have. 
haven't done one in Oregon and haven't got into the Dakotas or anything, but all the main ones, you know, I've mm-hmm. done. But now hunting some of these different habitats, like I, I've got a good one from Utah, but now I want to hunt some of that, um, you know, that that junior, uh, juniper pinion forest stuff and some of that mid-range country. And, and I want to learn the desert more in Arizona and some of yeah. those desert mule deer. And so, yeah, I really think that's what it's all about when you're all said and done. It's just challenging yourself, you know, in these different seasons, in these different habitats, um, because I think it builds like a different skill set every time, I think, you know. I I totally agree. And, you know, you and I have to talk about some of the desert stuff here in Wyoming. Um, I don't think there's a ton of leftovers, but there might be. So that might be up your alley on a couple of areas yeah, that, that I know fairly well. Um, just for just for fun, you know, especially since you're doing it archery. Um, but you'd have the entire month of September to get to get to enjoy that. Um, but I, I'm hoping in the next few years, like this is us talking goals. We've gotten really far away from pressure, but I'm hoping in the next few years, this is kind of what I'm, my plan is September and October is going to be dedicated to mule deer. And then I'm going to try really hard to draw late season elk tags. Um, that's going to be my philosophy with, you know, the next next little while um five or six years and we're going to see how that that plays out but that allows that affords me basically two months to really go after big mule deer and to do the single-minded focus um you know obviously hunting elk during the rut is a blast and it will always have a special place in my heart but going after big mule deer during those two time frames is really what i you know trips my trigger i guess is the way that i that i look at it and so i think but then i'll be honest the the allure of riding a horse in late season on some of these big mule deer i really want to get learn how to do that you know and i think that would be a lot of fun to go do (laughs) absolutely yeah i yeah, we all kind of are individuals and come up with our own hunt plan for the future, and we all kind of figure out what we like to hunt and when we like to hunt it. And I, I definitely like hunting different species, and so, yeah, I try to hunt mule deer. I hunt them real hard and completely focused on them till about, you know, all of August and then September till about the 10th or 15th. And then I really switch gears to elk, and I hunt them September, mid-October. And then once it gets to October, November, December, January, you know, this year I've got two mule deer tags and then probably end up in AZ. Then I kind of switch back to mule deer. But, yeah, it's it's kind of fun to figure out a, a plan in those seasons. And, and just like you said, like the, the key to getting big critters is, is just having the time to be able to be out there and have the time to be able to glass and learn the species. And so, yeah, it's all what we're kind of striving for is to spend more time what we love to do. I And I think, honestly, a, a part of that is the focused intensity on it. Um, I remember when I was like in my early 20s, straight out of college, I started a and my my schedule was such that I worked basically Sunday through Thursday for the most part. And there were a lot of special events that I had to be at on Fridays. But I figured out that there was public land that was close. And it was high pressure. But this is what actually first got me to do some bow hunting. Um, and I'm not a... I, I'm not a single weapon guy. Um, I know some people have made that commitment. I just can't do it. <laughs> I like being able to switch to a rifle when I, when I want to. Um, but... 
well, it's good to take advantage of all the seasons that they <laughs> offer, you know, for sure. And um, uh, rifle hunting has taught me so much over the years, like hunting late season bulls with a rifle, <laughs> you know, it's grueling in that cold and in that snow in day after day. And there is like to circle back on hunting pressure, like general rifle season in Montana with 19,000 out of state tags. And I live in one of the most popular huge drainages to hunt elk like we deal with pressure you talk opening day there is a guy on every single ridge but it's taught me over the years how to deal with it you know how to get Mm -hmm. good vantage points how to keep hiking during the week and going up these different drainages and pretty soon you start to unlock the secrets and so these bulls it's the toughest time of year to hunt them you know like just like you were talking about earlier it's the toughest time of year to hunt no hunt them you have the most pressure in guys with rifle but you just start to spend time out there and start to figure it out and find little honey holes that hold them. And, and maybe there's been boot tracks up there, but like we said earlier, timing of elk and catching them when they're in there, you know? And so you get up in there and then you have it to yourself and you end up killing a big bull, you know? So it, it's uh, rifle season has taught me so much about hunting. And without rifle season, I wouldn't be the, the hunter I am today. Like uh, I just got so much experience that way. And also, you know, when you do find the buck you want, you got a better chance to kill him. I see a bunch of bucks that I would, I would dang near cut off a toe to kill or an arm to kill, but like with a bow, I just don't kill a lot of them. It takes a long time to try to arrow a buck like that. So rifle gives you a better chance at success. So yeah, I mean, I think guys should take, you know, uh, advantage of all the seasons or I guess we're all just individuals and you got to find like what you said, trips your trigger archery trips my trigger for some reason i am just hooked on it you know and so that's what i gravitate towards but everybody's different and in truth be told it was it was kind of funny i went through you know this is getting a lot of scott reeker's personal hunting journey here um i spent a lot of time and part of it was the location i was in i figured out i lived in this townhouse and you know at that point straight out of college you're a kid not making any money and so I got this borrowed bow. And so um, a friend gave it to me because I had found these deer. I went scouting over, um, you know, on mountain range to the west of where I was living. And I found these deer in a walk-in area. And they had figured out that if they could, they would leave the same entrance because there was a high fence that, like, it was meant to to stop traffic from running these animals over. So, and, but it was meant to keep the elk inside of it during the winter. But the deer had figured out how to use use the human entrance. And I was like, pinch point. But I knew the only way I was going to get a chance at him was to do it with a bow. So this guy, um, he loaned me his bow to use that. And I ended up using it all archery season. But in this townhouse I had, I figured out that if I opened up my garage door, and put a target at by the garage door and then went all the way back to the end of my living room and shot through three doorways <laughs> and I could get 28 yards. And for me, that was a blast. So I was shooting like every night and got way into it. Got to the point where my roommates would call beforehand to make sure that I wasn't shooting my bow when they opened the door. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was pretty entertaining for all of us involved. And then eventually um, I bought my first bow. I shot it a bunch. But once I actually like started like – learning some of those skill sets that come with bow hunting, I started killing more animals with my rifle. 
Um, and I think it taught me a different level of patience. That's also the, the time point when I, I had read Mike's books, but I started taking them from the knowledge to wisdom state, you know, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And I started taking the things that Mike taught about glassing and hunting high country mule deer. And so I started killing animals a lot more. And then, then, you know, as I've gotten older, my standards for what I will or won't shoot based on the itchy trigger finger has gone up. Um, and so now I'm at the point where if it's not a big old mature buck, I'm just not going to shoot it. You know, I'm not interested in it. This is going to sound, you know, sound snobbish, but I found a buck that probably would have scored mid 170s. Like I can, I actually talked about it, but he wasn't old. Um, you know, when we were, we were talking the game plan for hunting together, you know, September 15th, and I just wasn't as excited about him. But the other buck that I found, he had more age on him. Then the third buck that I found had a ton of age plus the antler. So I was like, yep, let's do this. There wasn't even a question to ask, you know. And so it's one of those that it just took a little bit of time to get to that point of maturity, too, of what figuring out what trips your trigger. So I credit with bow hunting for upping my skill set, even though I'm not in by any stretch an exclusive bow hunter or, you know, I don't. You know, like you and Dan Picard, man, you guys are animals with a bow. Um, and so that success level that you guys enjoy um, has been something that I don't want to say envy because it's not like a jealous envy, but it's a, it's a prime, maybe more respect is a better word. Something that I really respect, like what you guys have been able to accomplish with <laughs> archery tackle and be able to do it as consistently as you guys do that part is really cool to be around and even you know even to somebody that's around hunting talk all the time you always learn something from it yeah oh, what a what a great compliment yeah thanks scott um what a great observation too i do think bow hunting does it, it makes you a better rifle hunter and especially when i really got into the the finer workings of a bow and executing a back tension release it gives you such trigger control to squeeze until the shot breaks and it lets you aim and lets it swim around on the target when i pick back up a rifle now i am so deadly with that right like i can shoot now you know like now i can just set my crosshairs where i want them almost picking that hair as i squeeze on the trigger like there, there's nothing that that gets away so yeah it does i i had a buddy uh phil larson that works for black gold and that's what he always said too is bow hunting just makes him uh such a better rifle. it took his rifle hunting to another level and and i think that's i i think all of this experience in the woods makes you better and then paying attention to the woods while you're out there you know and you can you can double that learning curve you know or or more but yeah it's just amazing that experience in the woods like that you know different habitats different weapons different seasons it it all helps improve your your overall skill set which in the end helps you fill more tags yeah i agree yeah it's well and it's i think you know you know, you and Dan both do this is you look for opportunity hunts, like for instance, Hawaii, um, where it's a target rich environment where you are going through the skill set required to execute an archery kill. Whereas there's a lot of guys who they haven't practiced that much. So they're in their fifth or sixth year of archery hunting and you know, you just you get the giant jitters because you just haven't executed through all the way to a kill shot. Now, not everybody's going to go to Hawaii, and, but it's obviously a practice level thing, practicing under stress too. I think that makes a big difference for 
for those who, you know, those who are really successful and, um, you know, those that don't come home with, with an animal with any regularity, I think that's a, um, I think that plays a role in it. There's, there's ways you can simulate shooting under stress, you know, run a hundred yards before you go shoot your bow or your rifle, you know, like sprint it and then see how long it takes you to get, you know, your breathing under control that things like things of that nature make a big difference because it gets rid of the, it gets rid of some of the things that you you think, oh man, I, I just can't do anything. I'm going to be breathing heavy. Well, no, that's not the case. There's ways that you can control that. Oh, you're so spot on, Scott. Like the like, there are ways that you can practice and get yourself ready for the scenario. But like, even as we sit here, there's there's nothing like actually shooting at an animal, like getting that adrenaline rush. And that's with a bow or with a rifle. In the same way with a rifle, Scott, like. You have to execute on a few animals and work your way up the trophy ladder. You can't just set out and say, I'm going to kill a 180-inch buck and I'm going to hold out for that when you've never shot a buck before. Yep. Like first you got to shoot a muley buck and then you got to set out and try to shoot a four-point. And then you, know, then you can set higher and higher standards and work your way up. And same with the bow. Like you said, high-opportunity hunts ha have been my bread and butter going to Hawaii and getting multiple opportunities – but I also just love action. And so like antelope hunts do that for me because yeah. how many stocks do you get on antelope? Or like yeah. in Montana, we can get five white-tailed doe tags over the counter. And so, you know, all of a sudden I can practice on white-tailed does, stalking on them and getting that experience. And then you work your way up and you start executing on some bucks and some bulls. And pretty soon you get really dialed on the process and build your confidence. And now you can hold out for a bigger bull or a bigger buck because you know when you get the opportunity, you can close the deal and make your shot. But but it is something you have to learn through experience, I think. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that's – for me personally, that's one of the reasons that, you know, when – youth seasons are so important um in some form or fashion where, where there's a little less pressure um hopefully the parents aren't throwing pressure at the kids either um but the youth seasons are so important because that number one it gets them addicted to it hopefully um and then b if they don't fall in love with hunting and the culture at minimum they learn to respect why it's done and then going the next step further is when a you know, young, young, um, young adult or teenager or preteen gets their first, um, gets their first animal, then that, you know, that takes it to the next piece where this becomes a, you know, like a kind of your heart language, you know, the language you think in, um, it becomes a, you know, a heart language where hunting is, is a part of what you're doing. And then, going through the motions of of a kill and how to execute how to move slow you know like how many times i screwed up early on because i didn't move slow when i was getting ready for a shot you know just lots of little things like you know instead of kneeling down lean against the tree that you're next to you know i mean just all sorts of things that you can do that just make a big difference in in executing your shot but learning how to do those things slowly where you know don't make eye contact with the whole group or the whole herd if they've already seen you. Little things like that, and you can get set up for a shot if you don't make eye contact on them. And people don't realize there's little things like that that happen, but you learn that as a teenager, it'll make you far successful later. There's so many little nuances that now is second nature for you and I. And it's like, um, but when I take my daughters out and I'm teaching them from scratch, 
it like brings it back home for me that oh this isn't common knowledge like this is something we have to talk about and work on and practice and you talk about the youth seasons and and we always try to take advantage but nowadays you know we've got volleyball and basketball camps and family stuff and so this we me and uh, my daughters weren't able to get out for the two day youth season we were busy we were booked up and so me and Katie went this past weekend during general rifle season. But, you know, I really work with her in her shooting positions, and, and we use, like, the swagger bipod. We use that, and we work on her shooting positions, and she can't shoot offhand. I mean, my youngest daughter, she's 11 years old right now and maybe weighs 60 pounds. She can't even hold up the rifle, you know, but through, like, practicing and working, and we do a lot of dry fire drills where we just, like, okay, standing position, okay, you know, kneeling position, okay, sitting position, okay, lay down – and we, we make her get down, get on the target, dry fire, pra- fire practice, and then we do live fire practice mm-hmm. where we get her comfortable with that gun and comfortable with shooting groups. But still, it's like animals. You just can't – it's tough to replicate that. So you prepare them as much as you can, and then this weekend, you know, we did. We got an opportunity. We spotted five bucks. And it, it was uh, an adventure hunt for me and Katie, the first one I've taken her on. So we drove, you know, six hours away from home, and we kind of did truck camping. And then we hunted hard. We put on good miles, and it was it was bitter cold. She did really good. She's a, a tough kid. But we, uh, we finally found five bucks. We made a play around, and it was a tough shot, but we got her set up. She felt stable, and just like you said, that little, those little things, those nuances, uh, moving slow while you're trying to get a shot. When you first start rifle hunting, I would dang near run to try to get set up and throw a rifle on the animal to shoot, and you end up blowing up the whole scenario. But we got her moving slow and got her set up. She was steady, a nice four-point, finally separated, and she squeezed off a shot, and it was – you know, it was like in the 150-yard range is about as close as we can get. And she's good out to 200 if she has a good rest, 100 if we're really shooting on the fly. But I thought it was a makeable shot, and I watched that buck kick. I think she maybe just missed low or maybe just in front of the chest or just pulled the shot a little bit. Who knows? And uh, I, I could tell it didn't hit through the binos, but I did see the deer kick. And so we go up and – we look for blood. We follow the tracks for a while. There was nothing, and she's a little bummed. And it's it's just um, you kind of explain to him, you know, it isn't over yet. We may get an opportunity, and we did. We ended up creating another opportunity on a two-by-one. But then watching her execute that next time, like how much easier and quicker it came to her, and that was just one experience. And all of a sudden she threw on that two-by-one, and I knew that thing was toast, you know, and, and a perfect shot, you know, right off the sticks, right to that deer that went and laid down, and she was able to harvest her second deer. But it it's so fun to see it through their eyes and, and uh, be back in touch with all those things that you've almost forgotten, you know, the, the tracking and looking for blood and setting up and shooting positions. Man, it's really cool. Like um, you've got your, your kids growing up as well, and it won't be too long and you'll be hunting with them. But it it's a really neat experience to go out with this next generation. It is cool. Ella went with me on a dove hunt to a friend's house, and it was really funny. So we brought – I brought a little uh, – call it a – you know, it's kind of a daisy red rider that doesn't work anymore, but it still makes the sound. And so I let her pretend like she was shooting, but she had to, you know, she's three. And so we had her set up, you know, learning. It was, it was, it, it was mostly about gun safety this trip. Um, Chris and I both had our shotguns and we killed a few doves and my dog retrieved them. She got to see that. Um, 
but she didn't freak out when she saw the birds dead. Um, and that part was, that part was cool to me because, you know, she's been around the hunting culture. You know, they, they ask, my girls ask me every single time, daddy, did you kill a deer? Did you bring one home? Can we go look at it? No, I didn't kill one this time. And, you know, and so, but they've been around that. So they know that meat has to come from somewhere. Something living had to die to do that. And so for her, it was about being out there with us. And, you know, she was all excited that she got to, to hold this, this pellet gun, you know? And so had nothing in it, you know, but it was about her having an opportunity to see it. She only held it for a couple of minutes. Then she wanted to play with the birds and she wanted to play with the dog, but she got all camoed up and went out with me. And it was about going, you know, and, and she still talks about her first hunt with daddy. So I'm, you know, mission accomplished. Man, mission accomplished. Yeah. As, as dads, you, um, it's tough to bring these younger kids, you know, as they're growing up, you have to cater the experience to them. You can't go as hard as you want to, you know, you don't, you don't want to push them to the point of where they're not having fun, but it's so important every time we can get these kids out for an adventure. And, and that's me included. Like anytime I can get these girls talked into doing a float with me, doing a trail run, doing a, a hike, doing a hunt, whatever it is, if they will come with me, I, I will happily cater that experience and try to give them an outdoor experience so, you know, th that we have something that we connect on and, and throughout life and as they get older, we're going to continue to connect on it. And you're also instilling like these really good values and just like you were teaching gun safety. So I'm the same way. Anytime I can get a chance to bring these kids, it is so important to bring them. And then Katie gets to go, Katie or Taylor, you know, both my daughters, they get to go to school and talk about their adventure with dad, you know, rowing all the way across the lake, getting in a lightning storm, get, you know, whatever it is. It's always an adventure with dad, whatever we're doing, you know, so to give them those adventures in life is pretty neat. I totally agree. It's, you know, doing it early on and then getting them involved and, you know, I bear no illusions. My kids are going to pick the things that they want to do, but I want to encourage them to do it well, no matter what. Um, I want them to jump in, do it well, learn it, um, figure out the things that, you know, your God gifted abilities and, and do those as good as you possibly can. You know, you and I both, you know, both found hunting and want to excel in it and do well with that. But, you know, I'm hoping my girls will, you know, at minimum want to be involved with hunting. Um, and then we'll see, maybe they'll love it. Um, you know, the next one that's on the way is a little boy. So I'm really hoping that he'll get into that, you know, be hunting partner for life. Maybe I'll regret it cause he'll be, you know, pulling me around the mountains that I don't want to go to like I did with my dad by the time I'm that age, but we'll see what happens. So how cool. Yeah. Same way. My oldest daughter is 15 in high school and then she's really into volleyball. So we haven't got out yet this year. She's got an antelope tag and I'm still hoping to get her out here in late season. But, um, you know, that's what I try to instill in her is find what you love to do and spend your time and effort in that. And, and she's, you know, She's found this volleyball and plays in a couple leagues and supports her friends and works really hard at it, like puts in the hard work. And I just couldn't be 
you know, more proud of her. And she, you know, she's well-rounded as, you know, she gets good grades and she's a big part of our family and, and, and a good person in things, which are really important. But to find that thing that you love to do and then work hard at it and improve, like that's the one thing I really wanted to instill in them. So even though she hasn't been out hunting with me yet, she's been working so hard at this craft of volleyball. And, and that's been really fun to see. Yep. it's it's cool to see them accomplish things and you know with obviously i'm i'm a few years behind you and even friends here at the office but i'm i'm just excited to watch them watch them grow i mean i i'm going to miss this phase where you know daddy's side of you you want them to be completely dependent on you forever and you know meet their needs and that sort of thing but on the same end we're also raising them to move out too. you know, there's a mission accomplished point where, all right, you turned out pretty good and you're productive citizens. And I am very proud of the person you've become. And honestly, I think hunting's going to be a big part of that in our family. Like the, you can instill a lot of work ethic. You can instill a lot of pieces that come with it. And then, you know, even, you know, even learning how to, you know, how to think and, and accomplish a task inside a hunting situation, I think helps you in the rest of life. Oh man. Yeah. Dude, you're, you're spot on so many valuable lessons to learn there that they can, you know, that they can put in play in other places in their life. Yeah. It's just instilling those, those values and, uh, life lessons that, that carry over. So yeah, no, you're spot on Scott. And speaking of, I got to get down to go grab my daughter here from basketball practice, but man, thanks so much for taking the time. What a great conversation. We actually recorded this one. Yeah, we did. And so we won't have to re-record or anything like that's ever happened before. So. <laughs> oh, never. But uh, thanks again, Scott. I, I always enjoy talking with you in these in-depth conversations. I, I always learn something, too. So, um, yeah, you're a heck of a good hunter and a great friend. And, yeah, just thanks for taking the time, man. And um, good luck on the next little one on the way. All right. I appreciate it, Brian. We'll talk with you soon. Okay. Bye. Right. That's a wrap. Uh, again, another fun conversation with my buddy Scott, and um, congratulations to him on the new little one. Uh, happened just hours after we got off the phone. He was going to the hospital, and um, just happy uh, uh, his new baby boy and his wife are doing good. And um, man, it's just so awesome, like having this little family unit. I know I absolutely cherish mine. You know, my my two girls and my wife and this family unit that we do things together and, and enjoy dinners and evenings together and mornings. And man, it is um, it's going by in the blink of an eye. I can't believe my daughters are 16 and almost 12, 16 and 11. But God, it is just flying by. And uh, so I'm just doing my best to enjoy every moment or every chance I get to hang out with them and. Uh, pretty soon, you know, my little family dynamic's going to be changing. So, uh, any, anyways, just makes me think of my own family and uh, how fortunate Scott is. I know they've got three kids, and when they're all young, uh, it can be a bit chaotic. Um, but, uh, you know, just enjoy it, guys. Gosh, it goes away quick, and pretty soon, you know, you've made this productive little adult, and they're going to be going out into the world and into life on their own. So, um, it's a really cool journey, but it, man, it goes by quick. So, uh, with that great conversation with Scott, it was really fun to talk about pressure. And then, you know me, I just like an authentic conversation and, uh, we kind of talk about wherever it leads or wherever it goes. And so that was a fun one. Uh, got some good recordings coming up to you guys. Uh, want to thank our sponsors swagger. They've been a, a great, uh, 
sponsor for the podcast for Eastman's Elevated. They're a great company. I really believe they build the best shooting sticks, best, best bipod. Excuse me, I can't say bipod. Best bipod on the market. So uh, make sure to check them out if you're in the market for it. Uh, also want to thank Technu. Uh, they have their Technu Original. Um, so good if you have any poison oak or poison ivy that's uh, around your house or, or where you recreate. So nice to have some of that in the truck or in the cupboard. So thanks to those guys. Um, also want to thank you guys. Man, the support has just been um, it's been humbling lately. It's uh, it's um, Man, I mean you guys are reposting the podcast and sending me messages uh, everybody's up in their game. I see guys being successful on next level bowls and bucks and, um, man, I'm just so, so prideful in, in the community that we're building as a podcast and I'm trying to, to repost more and more. I'm really proud of that episode, uh, that conversation I had with John Dudley. That was a great one last week. If you guys missed it, check that one out. And, uh, just trying to bring you guys the absolute best Western hunting content, um, I can. I think we're doing a really good job of it and uh, really excited at what the future holds. But thanks to you guys for um, all the shares, downloads, uh, the posts. Man, it really helps me out and it's humbling. You know, small guy can start a podcast down in his basement and um, pick up steam and really connect with the audience. And it just seems like the more honest and authentic about who I am and, and what I love to do and what I stand for, uh, the more it connects with you guys. So it's a, it's a special deal that, that I have going and a special deal that, that we have going and, and, um, man, I just really appreciate it guys. So thanks a bunch for all that. And, um, yeah, see what else do I have? The, um, beyond the grid, super excited about my episode this year and then um, we'll see if they do anything with that solo antelope footage and if not then I'll edit something together and and put it out for you guys um, we'll just put it out on social media or something like that but um, yeah I'll check in with those guys on that really excited about the elk hunt and um, yeah really excited I got uh, that January hunt I think I'm going to try to fit that in and try to squeeze a couple more days here if I can um, down hunting late season muleys and the deep snow and big mountains and um, so we'll see if I can I can get away with that and uh, man it's 40 degrees this week so we don't have a lot of light out uh, need to be getting work done and and uh, things of that nature but may get down to the river I got down there Maybe it was last week or did like an after work or afternoon and went down there. And man, fishing's really good. If it's above 32 degrees, it's pretty fun fishing right now. And love to make a trip for some steelhead. And oh man, I got a bunch of plans, a bunch of things to, to go do. And then just keep on this training. Um, just become better and improve. And so, yeah, I need to sit down and record another solo podcast at kind of some of my goals and ambitions and thoughts on things and um, kind of my training and what I'm doing. And man, it's, it's just all trying to get better. I just love this endeavor, this um, bow hunting lifestyle. It's it's just the absolute best. And, and it gives me gives me such meaning in my life and gives me such passion that, that pulses through my veins and keeps me excited uh, for, for upcoming things and keeping my, my body in shape and my mind sharp and um, – keeping my my archery game tight and, and really working with my bows and man it's just so awesome I just really enjoy it and it's so fun to share with you guys and uh, I know you guys connect and have a lot of the same passion so um, we'll improve together and uh, find next level success in 2020 so uh, thanks a bunch guys for all the support um, that's that's the episode uh, I'll check in with you guys next week